Hey, everybody, Alan Arnett here with another episode of the podcast on alanarnett.com. And I am thrilled to death to have what I consider to be one of the premier climbers in the younger generation. And I can say that being an old man myself, but Joost Kobisch from Germany is on the Zoom call with us. Hey, good afternoon, Joost. How are you doing today? Hey, Alan. Awesome. Awesome to be on the show. Yeah, doing very well. So you were born in Germany, but now you live in the beautiful town of Chamonix at the base of Mont Blanc. What uh, what got you to uh, move from Germany to Mont Blanc or, or to Chamonix? Let me guess, the mountains. It was definitely the mountains, but you have to imagine I grew up in the flatlands of Germany. And then also like I kind of stayed there and it was not so easy to decide to move here. Actually, with my last Everest project, the decision came, the decision was made because when I had this last project coming up, I invested all money that I had into the project. Like there was literally nothing left and then my phone broke. So I was like, shit, you know, I, I need to like post on Instagram and do all this stuff when I'm on the expedition. So how do I get money for a phone now that I'm like fully invested in this expedition? And I came up with the idea to just quit my apartment to save the rent. And so I like one week, literally one week before I left to Nepal, I like took all furniture, everything out and put it to my parents' place. <laughs> um, and then so uh, it makes things, it made things easier. When I came back, I was like, yeah, everything's already packed and ready. And so I was like, yeah, Chamonix is a good training destination. And um, after the project, I then permanently moved to France. Nice, nice. I love it. So you you pre-packed before you went. <laughs> hey, listen, before we get into talking, before we get into talking about your projects and especially this upcoming uh, winter solo Everest attempt, um, let's go back. You said you were born in the flatlands of Germany. So what walk us back? How did you get into mountaineering, given that that's where you uh, were born and raised? All right. So Let's go all the way back. <laughs> Let's go back to like primary school because that's when it kind of started. Um, I had swimming classes and um, we had these bronze, silver and gold like medals you would make in school. And for the silver one, you needed to jump from the three meters jump into the pool. And so in my class, everybody did it. But then I was when I was standing up there looking down, I, I couldn't do it. I was just scared. I was terrified. You know, um, I was just I think it was this mix of like losing control. I mean, I would see it safe, but then to make this jump. And so I think it was a bit the height, but then also this feeling of, yeah, of loss of control. And I think that's pretty much when kind of a cycle started as a child, I always somehow then got fascinated by things I was afraid of and I would try to like tackle them and so when I got the opportunity to um, to join the climbing group in my school in the sixth grade I was scared um, but at the same time it was this I was fascinated by it and because I was scared I think that's why I fell in love with it um, it was really like expanding this feeling of control and then also learning that I could deal with this fear through climbing. Yeah. You know, I, I can, I can totally relate to that because at one point in my life, I was, uh, I had a fear of heights and the way I, I conquered it was I was in New Zealand on holiday and I did a, a bungee jump off of a bridge. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I love it. You know, by embracing our fears, we, we are able to manage them and overcome them. And we're going to talk about later on, on, on talking about dangers and risk management on Everest. But uh, so, so a couple of years ago, 2019, you did your first attempt on Everest solo winter West Ridge. Um, so and you, and so briefly walk us through some of the other big projects that you've done here in the recent years. Okay, maybe we go a bit chronologically from my school lessons when I was 12 years old. That's when I like started climbing. I was still in this village far away from the mountains. So I then did lots of sports climbing and I'm this kind of new generation that grew up with gym climbing. So it took some years until I finally went outdoor climbing. <laughs> um, so it's like, yeah. But this moment when I really, when I really touched the rock, out there that was when something changed and I started to train a lot and I was then also reading more about mountaineering and to me it was a, a natural build-up you would have like indoor bouldering or bouldering at the bottom this foundation that would prepare you for like climbing and rock climbing and the rock climbing climbing would prepare you for alpine climbing but then ultimately in my mind I always thought this this prepares you for an expedition um, and so I always wanted to go for an expedition and I got some opportunities when I was younger, like uh, my school had an exchange program to Kenya. Mm. So I, I organized to climb uh, a mountain there, Mount Kenya. Yeah. Um, but nobody wanted to join me. So I kind of, and I didn't have much money. So I kind of hired a cook and uh, a porter in Nairobi and went off it. Honestly, it was my first mountain that I ever like tried. So nice. I, failed hugely failed burned my face got altitude sick i went up in like two days to four, above four thousand and got sick and it was horrible but i had no experience so i thought this is how it must feel like this must this is it you know <laughs> this is, so, the way so this is. is great mountaineering you want to do <laughs> wonderful <laughs> exactly um and i didn't reach the summit i reached only five thousand meters um but I learned a very important lesson on that trip. And that was that I actually didn't need that cook and I didn't need the porter. So I, I wow. could just also do it by myself. Um, and so I did later climbs, but same approach. I think I would call this the learn or die phase of my life. It was really <laughs> tackling like huge projects where I was like utterly unprepared for. Like <laughs> first mountain I ever did was like a 5,000er and, and it continued like this. So I did a lot of crazy shit in that time um, and did did project I wasn't ready for. Like, um, yeah, some of them, I think the first mountain in the Himalayas I climbed was Emadablam. By then I was already 21 and I did it uh, like soloing, like not using any like, yeah, safety or any backup or anything, just a very pure style and looking back, that wasn't smart. This, these times were just really wild. And I had so many failures during that time. But at the same time, I had a very steep learning curve. That's why I call it the learn or die. Like you, you have only the choice to learn in order to survive. Um, and then there was a turning point 2016 when I got the opportunity to climb Annapurna 1. Annapurna 1 had a death rate around 33% when I was there trying it. And 
that really intimidated me. And I realized back then this learn or die approach, it, it will not work here. <laughs> I had to change, you know, I had to do something differently. And I was really the, the rookie there. Like there were like only experienced mountaineers there. I was the only one who had never climbed an 8,000 on an expedition. And I saw very experienced mountaineers turn around, take the next helicopter and never come back. So I decided to really see the summit as a bonus from that point on. And so that, that really was a big mentality change um, on that expedition. And that helped me like, I was like, okay, it's cool that I'm here, but I don't need to summit. I just take one step and each step is a rest point because each step will also allow me to just return and go back. But I realized something on Annapurna One, and that was um, I was actually escaping from the masses, from a lot of people, because I wanted to feel the wilderness. Um, the previous year, I'd climbed, I'd attempted Lotse, which was very busy, and I was there having the illusion that I would be approaching solo. And on Annapurna One, it was very similar. I um, I had the illusion I would be soloing, but actually there were like 15 other people climbing and there was a route that was fixed and and so on. And so I was like, look, this is the most dangerous mountain that I know. It's very wild, but still it was not pure wilderness. It was not really being right. like soloing there. So I was looking for something that was more wild. In 2017, I chose to attempt Nangpagosum 2, which at that time was the highest unclimbed mountain of Nepal, um, approximately 7,300. And that was really a, a big moment for me because there I realized, yeah, I can be alone on this and I can solo this stuff and being there knowing it's unclimbed and yeah, just yeah, pure wilderness and I, I'm, I'm a very curious person, so it was just really nice to like look for a route out there and figure everything out. And so I did that in 2017. Um, and afterwards I thought, okay, how can I now um, project this, transform this on an 8,000er? And that's how the Everest project was born. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I like that continuum, uh, you know, learn or die. And then it's, uh, it's a more, um, more methodical approach to it, which then in turn revealed why you really climb. And that's the adventure. And that's the self exploration. That's what I'm hearing you say. Exactly. And now that I know why I'm climbing, I feel like I have so much more energy, so much more focus and just I don't know. You know, sometimes in the past it felt a bit like, why am I climbing this meaningless ice-covered right. stone pile, you know? But now yeah. it feels like I, I have this purpose and it really gives me a lot of energy. Yeah, you know, I always like to talk to people about why they want to do, um, you know, basically anything that's meaningful for them. And, you know, I, I love the I love the whole idea about failure. Um, and for me, I always say that failure is when you try something very hard you don't accomplish it and you don't learn from it. And so I, I've, I've read where you said before that you think that success is only attained through a series of failures because you learn every time. Exactly. And that's also now with this Everest project, it's going to be a step-by-step -step approach. If you try something really big, 
Um, if you don't fail along the way, I think the goal is not big enough. <laughs> I think then you might have chosen a too easy goal and, and you might reach it too early. And then, I mean, you have to look for a new goal. You know, I, I honestly think, and this is, this sounds really strange and a lot of people don't understand this. Um, but for me personally, you know, I attempted Everest three times and I didn't make it. And I learned every single time, but on my fourth time when I did summit and I did it for a very personal reason that was around my mother dying from Alzheimer's and honoring her, uh, I, I, you know, I'll tell you as a, as a, as a climber, if you will, it just, it was so much more meaningful to me by the fact that I had not done it the previous times. So in 2019, you, um, you went on your own, or actually you went with your, your buddy, Daniel, is that right? Uh, for your photographer? Daniel was doing photography on the previous. Yeah. And so uh, you wanted to do the, the almost rarely climbed West Ridge and you wanted to do it solo and you wanted to do it in the wintertime. So I think you've already answered this, but you, you got to 7,300 meters on that time. And then you chose to, to stop. You had a minor injury of your foot and, you know, other things. So when you think back about that, Two questions. One is, why did you do it in the first place? And secondly is, what did you learn? And then third, why do you want to go back again? So Okay, I already, I already forgot the first question, but I think it was like, why, you know? Yeah, <laughs> we so go, we go through it. <laughs> so why did, you, why did you want to go do Everest uh, in that style back in 2019? So climbing Nang Pagosum 2, I really discovered what was driving me and why I, I love these expeditions. And that was the search for wilderness and this journey into the unknown. And at the same time, trying something that I wasn't sure that I would be able to do or that is possible in general, because that's the unknown. And if I would do something that has been already accomplished, then I know it's possible because some other human already proved it's possible. Right. So then I wanted to do Everest in the wintertime without oxygen by myself because nobody had ever done that. So I knew that, okay, let's figure out if this is possible. And then I hit, like I, I went into planning and um, the Kumbu Icefall, which has lots of crevasses, very unstable and so on. It's not the best place for a solo climber. Um, so obviously I couldn't take that route. Then Chinese permits were very hard to attain. Yeah. And so, I looked into various routes and the Westridge just seemed the very natural solution. And at the same time, the more I thought about it, the more beautiful I thought it was. Um, and so that's how I, end up, I ended up with this specific project. So let's move then to, um, to kind of looking backwards. Um, what, what's the two or three lessons that you took away from that experience that you will apply as you approach this next attempt okay so i think a very major lesson i learned or i wouldn't i'm not sure if that's exactly a lesson but i would say there are many things that i changed after this expedition mm -hmm. and one was i changed the coach it's funny that you just just oh. in this moment you used your coach <laughs> <laughs> that, that was not planned that was not planned <laughs> um so I, um, 
I do work with uh, two coach coaches at the moment that kind of mentor me and it made a huge difference. Ah. And like, so I changed a lot in my training, um, did like a major change there. So I believe that alone is like probably the biggest, biggest change for the next attempt. But then of course you learn about the microclimate, you learn about the route and I learn about how my gear and I myself interacts with these elements there. So let me think something else. I mean, yeah, I'm, this is not something I changed, but now that I know the route, I can be much more efficient. This route yeah. has, hasn't been climbed for like 30 years or something. So I looked at the old hand-drawn topos and then you're trying to match them. It just looks completely different, you know? <laughs> um, so right now I know exactly where to go and and how to climb it, um, which will make a big, big difference. And so what I will change is obviously the the way I will approach the mountain because last time, sometimes I went into dead ends of the route because I didn't know, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the original um, West Ridge was uh, actually, I think then uh, Hornbeam, um, they started from camp two in the Western Coombe. They didn't start at the, at the, at the pass, right? Um, could be very well possible. I looked into a winter expedition that also tried this route and yeah. some expeditions actually built a cable car to Lola, like a steel, steel cable, uh, cable car. Yeah. There are some pictures I saw for the logistics because the route I climbed, especially the low bit is so technically challenging that you cannot really carry loads up there. So they, they built this cable car. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, crazy, and and also that route's pretty deadly. I mean, uh, the Japanese uh, alpinist. Uh, I'm going to mess up his name, but uh, Nobukazi Kirki. Um, you know, he he attempted it several times, not in winter per se, but in autumn more, um, and uh, he wasn't able to pull it off. In fact, he lost his fingers in one attempt. So pretty pretty dangerous. And then you multiply that with no oxygen in winter you know, the risks are pretty high. So you talked about your training. Um, give us an example of what you did differently or, or you are doing differently right now in that training. I think in the past, I made the mistake of training a bit too unspecific. Mm. Um, and so right now, I think it changed a bit more towards like competitive sports. And so there is a volume phase where I just build up a lot of volume. But right now, in the last month before the expedition, I have a very specific training schedule. Like for example, I don't know, one example is once a week I go up a 4,000 yeah. with some load in my backpack. I didn't do that last time and I think it's gonna make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you wanna go, okay, so you the lessons you learned from last time was, a, you know, you changed your, you got coaching, you changed your training, uh, your gear management. I think one of the things that you told me when you came back from the last time that you were surprised at the at the uh, the weather, the climate on Everest. I mean, just um, so a trick question: which is worse, wind or the or the uh, cold temperature? <laughs> the wind is worse. I I'd always prefer the cold. For actually, 2019, before I went to the expedition, I trained in Alaska. So the winter before Everest, I was on Denali in winter, which is much much colder. Yeah. But uh, I mean, the wind, once you have the wind, it's just horrible. And then also, I mean, my tent at Everest is like 
it breaks very quickly or it just completely bends over and, and it's just, <laughs> yeah. It just gets collapses on top of you. Yeah. So you, you have a special tent that you had made for you or special poles of some kind? I uh, built a prototype tent that I can put up from the inside. So uh, ah. I prepare the platform. And so uh, when it's very stormy, I just throw my gear, everything in, and then I put it up from the inside. Okay. Um, you're already protected there. That sounds like a technique that might be useful in uh, on polar expeditions as well. Who knows? If anybody's interested, huh? <laughs> 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 the 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 Kobish tent, I like it. So uh, let's okay. So now you're going to be heading back. What's your uh, what's your schedule? When do you when do you leave? And and uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, what what is the definition of winter? I always love this discussion. It gets into the weeds really quickly. Hmm. Okay, so I will be back like 29th of October. I fly to Nepal. Then let's see if I will spend 10 days indoor quarantining. I don't know, I need to prepare a training schedule in that case, scenario. <laughs> um, and then I would attempt a 6,000 project for acclimatization. I'm not exactly sure which one yet, but yeah, once it's clear, I will talk about it. Yeah. And um, then in the end of December, move towards Everest. So the winter definition is a good one. Um, I'm personally, I don't know, I'm like a perfectionist and I can't stand if like, it's not super, super hard within the measures and so on. Like, so I thought, okay, 1st of December is the beginning of the meteorological winter. But 1st of December, if you want to ski here in Chamonix, it's, yeah, it's not good. It's not really winter. So I thought, okay, the beginning of the calendar winter at 22nd of December, that's when proper winter starts. Everybody can agree on that. And then the calendar winter ends on 22nd of March, which to be honest, 22nd of March, most people would not consider that as winter anymore. So I then decided just go with the tightest definition possible. We ended with the meteorological winter at the 28th of February. So 22nd of December, the beginning of the calendar and the end of the meteorological at 28th of February. That's the window I define as winter. Um, I mean, every, in the end it's mountaineering, there are no rules, but I personally would say this is winter. So you're gonna go, you're gonna, uh, will you have a, uh, what type of support will you have? Are you gonna take Daniel again as a photographer? Will you have a, a cook at base camp or is your Mount Kenya experience uh, taught you that you don't need anything like that? So here comes the Mount Kenya experience in. I will completely downsize the coming expedition and I will not have a base camp. I will start from the village and only use an advanced base camp and go lighter and more minimalistic than last time. So you're going to so you're going to use Gorakshep as your uh, base camp? Either Gorakshep or Lobuche. Gorakshep, I have some doubts with the drinking water quality. Yes. Um, because the toilets are higher than where they take the drinking water. I think that's never a good combination. <laughs> that's probably it's probably a good plan. Yeah. Yeah. Gorakshep had a different name when I first went there in the in the late 90s. Gorik uh, Gorik shit. So <laughs> but, uh, so wow, that really adds though, that's uh, several hours for you to get to the uh, the base of the or at least to the pass before you start heading up the ridge proper. 
So talk about that, that right below the base of the ridge at the top of the pass, that section right through there, that's some pretty challenging rock climbing, isn't it? Yes. So originally I wanted to climb a bit more to the left because I saw some YouTube documentaries from I think the 80s where there was an American expedition trying to do this project and they went more to the left. But going there, I don't know if it's climate change or whatever, but there were so many rock avalanches. Like when I was there, I didn't consider it safe. Mm. So instead I went to the very steep granite areas. Um, and so I have three very short pitches of up to overhanging granite climbing. I'm sorry, I don't know the Amer American grading on this, but just imagine slightly overhanging crack climbing. So it's like, it's pretty hard. Yeah. And, and you kind of use a, a solo rope system for protection. Okay. So um, I rope soloed those pitches because they were so hard that I wasn't sure if I could free solo onside them. Yeah. Um, so rope soloing is a bit like, um, oof, okay. When you're sports climbing and you are belaying your partner, right? Imagine it's like that, but your partner is actually an anchor and this person is fixed somewhere. It's like, and you are the one moving. So you are having the device and you're giving out rope and then along the way you're clipping in the draws and the, and the security. So I would build an anchor, maybe a few ice screws or yeah. I would um, put in some protection. And then I use a, a special knot, a cloth hitch. Mm -hmm. And through the cloth hitch, I give myself more slack, continue the climbing, open the cloth hitch again. I use the cloth hitch because I believe it's more safe. I can use two carabiners. If you use a Grigri for rope soloing, right. you can have only one carabiner, which then is the weak link. So if you fall, you can break the carabiner. So one of the things I was going to ask you about and wanted to discuss was risk management. And I think that's what you just went through is a classic example of how you manage the risk. You know, you, you use two carabiners instead of a single point of failure, potentially, you know, with a, a ATC or some type of rappel device or um, griggy or something like that. Um, when you get on, to, how about, how about avalanches? What, uh, how objective dangerous in that respect? Uh, how do you approach that? So I would say we're here in winter. Winter is a dry season. It's a monsoon-driven climate. So there is not much precipitation and we have extremely strong winds. So uh, generally speaking, there is not a real avalanche danger. Um, from my experience on the last expedition, the avalanche danger arrived with the end of the winter. So like I think 26th of February, I was still on the mountain or something like that. And there was a meter of snowfall. And then oh, wow. suddenly you have this one meter fresh on top of the frozen winter thing. Yeah. There were like so many avalanches. It was so dangerous. Uh, but the rest of the winter, it was like completely fine. And heading up to the pass, what about crevasses? You know, we, we are, you already talked about going through the Kumbu Icefall and that was, uh, you know, that was an unacceptable risk for you going solo. Uh, any crevasse danger in that area? There are some crevasses just before Lola because the glacier bends over and then the, the floating speed, I don't know if it's the right word concerning glaciers, but the glacial in speed increases. And at that point it opens up. But again, it's winter. So um, everything is pretty dry and solid. And so 
um, the snow bridges are strong or the crevasses are open and you see them. It's only getting dangerous once there's snowfall. So once you get on the West Ridge proper, uh, that's very, very exposed, very windy, I would assume, very cold with those high winds. Uh, talk to us about how you manage that environment, your equipment, you know, what type of layers are you wearing? Um, are you finding that your speed is increasing, decreasing? Is that a function of your acclimatization? Okay, so last time I did a very long acclimatization progress. I think the total expedition length was six months last time. And so I was really well acclimatized. This wow. year I will cut it down a bit. Last time I climbed something like four, six thousanders before, I don't know, maybe more. Um, this year it's gonna be more compressed with the acclimatization. I just want to also a bit like, I want to experiment with this and see like what, what's the effect. It's still a training expedition. I mean, there is a chance for the summit, but it's low. So like, just try to learn as much as possible. Um, and then layering wise and temperature wise, lots of learning there. Like, um, obviously I'm, I'm like onion layered. I just get as many layers below my downsuit as I can. But in the base camp, it often was minus 20 Celsius. So, Ooh. Whenever I'm in the base camp, I'm in the downsuit. It's like I'm wearing the, the summit downsuit at the base camp for breakfast, you know? And then I'm, I have to take care what kind of boots I'm wearing in the base camp because my feet would turn numb sitting at the breakfast table. That's the temperature. If you're moving, it's a bit easier, but it helps to use like warming bottles, like boil some water and, and put it in your downsuit and stuff. Um, <laughs> right. I taped my face with kinesio tape, which is really good against sun, um, but also really good against the cold. Then I used uh, a face mask that would pre-humidify pre and pre-warm my breathing air, which makes a huge temperature difference. Yes. Also yeah. like exercising. And then, um, from an American friend of mine, Lonnie Dupre. Sure. He's a polar explorer. Uh, I met him in Alaska when I trained for Everest and we spent a good time there. And I asked his advice because he's well known for the extreme colds, not in the high altitude, but in the polar circle. And I always like to get input from different like disciplines because I believe they can all add a different perspective and different value. And Lonnie said, Just, you really have to get Wolverine on your downsuit. Ah, and then I the found fur, some the fur, the fur going around the top, the hood. Exactly, the fur you would see on the pictures. It, yeah. The downsuit is not produced like that. I made right. an adjustment to have the fur on there um, because Wolverine, especially, is a very hydrophobic fur. So when you breathe out, um, the, there would be no ice crystal accumulation on the hair which is very important. If you use coyote or any other fur that you would see on fashion jackets, it, they would just accumulate snow and ice there and then they wouldn't uh, protect your face from the wind anymore because the fur is, I mean, it's intended for wind protection. And this thing was pretty expensive. So I called Lonnie, I said, Lonnie, this is like $250 just for this fur. And Lonnie said, $250 that will get you up very high on Everest. <laughs> and so I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I love that story. And, you know, and Lonnie is a legend, uh, like you say, not only polar, but also for his uh, um, Denali climbs in the wintertime. A few years ago, he tried it. He, was, he didn't take a tent. He was just going to do snow caves. And uh, that didn't work out too well. It was just the snow was just really too hard. 
I really admire Lonnie a lot. I love the Wolverine story, though. I thought you were going to tell me that you had to go out and, and kill a Wolverine and come back and, you know, skin it. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Maybe next time. <laughs> if I need a new, new suit or something. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, so the risk management and the um, it, and really not using supplemental oxygen. Obviously, it, one of the big benefits is it keeps your body warmer. And so you already talked about this, that at base camp, you're not moving and you get colder when you're moving, you know, it's manageable, I guess. Um, let's talk about style. So uh, is, is, I'm sorry, you're not going to bring, you're not having a cook and uh, you're not going to have a photographer this time. You could be hundred percent alone. There might be a photographer coming, but okay. if he comes, he will not be there in the beginning. He might come for the, for the final bit and, and observe a bit. So talk to us about not using oxygen. I know this is this can be a, a, a religious argument with people, but uh, I, I think your philosophy on not using oxygen is very interesting. And especially on something like this, because it definitely magnifies the risk element of it. And you're making this as a conscious decision. So walk us through your thought process of not using oxygen on mountains. Okay, I think my answer can be very like, it can be summed up in one sentence. And that's it. I believe that as an athlete, you should adjust your abilities to the environment and not the environment to your abilities. Yeah. yeah. And I, and you've been quoted as saying that using oxygen is analogous to doping, like using, um, you know, drugs on the, um, the tour de France or something like that. I think I said it wouldn't, it would be also funny if people would use oxygen on the tour de France. I mean, <laughs> then you would say, what the fuck are they doing? <laughs> And now, uh, if you're mountaineering, it's suddenly okay. So I just, I just found that very funny, you know. And I think you've already addressed this solo aspect with your experience on Annapurna. You know, it's really difficult these days to be, you know, quote unquote, solo on any of these these large, you know, eight thousand meter mountains around the world. Um, but I guess it's that that sense of being in, on the adventure and being self sufficient, and you know. I guess when you choose to do it in the wintertime, you're almost guaranteed to be on an uncrowded mountain. <laughs> especially on that route. Yeah, yeah, especially on that route, yeah. So um, in terms of when you're actually then on the West Ridge and you're moving higher, uh, you got to 7,300 meters last time. Uh, what, 7,366 or something like that. But, um, yeah, like plus or minus. Um and you're, you're going to take, are you going to do, go up the Hornbeam Coular? Is that the plan or wait and see? That's the plan. Um, I have not been up there yet, but my assumption is that the Hornbeam Coular will be more protected from the winds. And in wintertime, the winds are the biggest issue. Yeah. So I believe that it can actually be a benefit there. And at, at the same time, uh, as an alpinist, I just see this very beautiful line and it's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely stunning. I agree. So what, so, okay. So you're on the summit. Now, how do you get down? What's your route? Backwards. Not going to take the normal route down. It's winter. There will be nobody there. <laughs> not even as a rescue escape. It's, it's not smart to go down there. <laughs> I better go where you know. So just reverse course and just, just rappel down the Kular and go down the ridge and back down the Lola and back home. Yeah. I will take a hyperstatic ultralight rope with me 
to be able to repel. And I will have some pitons and some very basic equipment uh, with me to equip a few belays to repel. Um, I believe the belay, uh, the, the repelling will not be the hard part. The hard yeah. part will be the climbing up because there are some technical sections in there. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, uh, Tom Hornbean just lives uh, just about 50 miles away from me. And I've gotten a chance to, to meet him several times. And uh, so you're going to be you're going to be going through that couloir uh, on the uh, shoulders of giants. <laughs> yeah, ask him for the beta, you know, ask him. Move more right or more left in the Kuluai, the beta, where, where it's like really hard. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we can't get that answer. So you already said earlier, you kind of just threw it in as a one-liner as an aside, uh, that uh, low expectations of the summit. Exactly. So as I said from the beginning on, um, it's a huge project. It's really a big, big project. And so I come there to learn. Obviously, I believe that somehow I'm able to do it, but I know that chances are very low. And so for the coming expedition, I set myself a goal of 8,000 meters, the beginning of the Hornbeam Couloir, um, having a look there. Um, and if I can reach that, I'm perfectly happy. If I can go further, I'm also happy. But that way I also, how do I say, um, save myself from disappointments. <laughs> Set, set the expectations low and try to overachieve. I got it's you. It's still 8,000, huh? It's oh. still going to be hard to get there. Huh? Oh, yeah, 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 big time. You know, but you're, you know, you're two years older now. You're 29. You were 27 last time. So you're, you're older and wiser and more experienced. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also older, which means I'm slower, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I've, I've got socks older than you are, so... <laughs> <laughs> anything else you want to throw into this mix here mm, i have nothing on my mind no i think you you covered it all maybe i would be very curious to know what are your thoughts i mean you have seen so many expeditions you have seen so much uh, much more than i did is the does this remind you of anything that you've experienced uh, you know, the uh, uh, Kirky and what he tried to do uh, is probably the closest, um, you know, some of the uh, Simone Moreau uh, winter expeditions have been similar to this in spirit, you know, with, with him going up to, you know, the northern Russia and experiencing that just unbelievable cold, um, you know, some of the um, uh, Nanga Parbit expeditions have been kind of, again, similar in spirit. But, um, you know, you're, you're stacking the deck here. You're solo. You're true solo. I mean, you are alone. There's not even, even Messner on his solo attempt on Everest or for, uh, first solo, he had a cook at base camp. I mean, you're not even going to have a cook at base camp. You're cooking everything yourself, which again, you get back from a day and you're exhausted. Well, you're going to be back down in, I guess, Gorgeshep. So you can eat the food in the village there. So that addresses that. But still, you're solo climbing no oxygen winter with the, with the winds and the cold. Um, yeah. You're really stacking the deck on this one. I, I can't think of how else you can make it harder. <laughs> mm, let me think. Yeah, I think, but that's also the purpose. Huh? Make it yeah. hard, make it so hard that it survives, you yep. know, that this goal will, will be a lifeline for as long as possible, like a goal in life 
because once you reach it, you kill it, and then you need to look for a new one. Yeah, and I'm not going to ask you what the next project is. We're not even going to go there. I've got a really good friend that uh, he he is um, his mantra for climbing is do hard things. So, Yost, I think you're doing hard things here. And thanks again for all this time you've taken and uh, the uh, the candidness of you know answering the questions and the transparency. Uh, I know that there's going to be a tremendous amount of people following you. I think the last time you said there was a lot of expectations before you went. And then when it was over, everybody just kind of disappeared. Um, so let's not do that this time. When you're finished, when you get back home, let's, uh, let's catch up and do this again. We'll follow up and I'll tell you what I, what I learned, what, <laughs> what I learned additionally. Yeah. Exactly. When you touch that 8,000 meters, I really hope you go on to the top. That, that would be super. So <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. But I don't want to push too hard because it's still the learning process and I don't want to take on some unnecessary risks. Um, yeah. As they say, uh, Everest will still be there. And so far, I don't see any competition on this route. No, I don't, no, I don't think so. I know you're a little concerned about giving away all your trade secrets because somebody might come in and try to do it. But uh, uh, I just oh, don't. I didn't give you the big secrets. I didn't tell you how, how long the rope will need to be. To <laughs> all right. Uh, then I'm not going to ask that either. <laughs> all right, my friend. Best of luck. Stay safe. Come home. Alan, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir.